got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. We got to the second half of the season. Mike Matheny, the manager before the second half started, said it's going to be an awesome story what occurs in the second half of the season. Doubt he was expecting the Royals to lose their first series of the season. Not just losing a series, but losing to the lowly Baltimore Orioles, and that's just kind of where things are with the Kansas City Royals right now. So uh, we'll talk with David Lusky coming up in about 35 minutes from right now. Game five occurred over the weekend in the NBA Finals. The Milwaukee Bucks took a 3-2 series lead. It was probably the best game of the finals so far. Game 4 and Game 5 have probably been the best two games, and we've had them back-to-back. They've been close games that have had meaningful plays in the final minute of the game. Game 5, again, being the best of them all, going down to the final seconds to figure out if Milwaukee was going to hit free throws, if they were going to make a stop. The unbelievable play that Drew Holiday makes where Devin Booker, who has 40 points on the night, basically starts to turn around at the free throw line. And I don't know if he was looking for somebody to pass it to or if he was going to take a fadeaway jump shot. And Drew Holiday just read it perfectly, ripped the ball out of his hand as soon as he was turning, didn't see him because he was turning, goes the other way. And then to have the, not just the wherewithal, but also to have the chutzpah, I guess is a way of saying this, the courage to throw an alley-oop in that situation over Chris Paul, the Giannis Antetokounmpo, who it looked like when he had thrown it, it was like, oh, you probably should have thrown that a half a second sooner if you wanted to do that. But Giannis is just a freak athlete and comes down and dunks it. Unbelievable play by Drew Holiday. It's amazing that the two biggest plays that if the finals ended today, and who knows, maybe even after the finals does end, if the Bucs end up winning, we're going to look back on these two plays being the biggest plays in the finals of the entire postseason. Two biggest plays were both defensively, and they've come in back-to-back games. You have the Giannis block on the attempt at an alley-oop to go to DeAndre Ayton in Game 4, and that helps preserve the victory there and even the Series 2-2. to And then the Drew Holiday play there against Devin Booker, which helps preserve the Bucs from almost choking away what seemed to be an insurmountable lead late in that game, and then the Suns just kind of got down on the gas pedal and made it an interesting game in the final moments of everything. But then they came away with the big defensive plays. We think back to, I think it was the 2017 finals when LeBron had the chase down block, and that's a game where we think of the defensive play that ended the title. You could go to, like, the college game, and I feel bad even bringing this one up, but, like, a defensive play that led to a title, obviously, would be the Syracuse game against KU in 03. But over 
for the the overall, like the most part, when we think of the best plays, the biggest plays that led to titles, we think of the offensive plays. We think of the Michael Jordan sidestep against the Jazz. We think about the buzzer beaters. We think about the game tying shots late in the game. We think about the crazy dunks. We don't think of much as about the defensive plays, and that's because there has to be a very special moment for a defensive play like that to occur. And the fact that you've gotten two in back-to-back games, unbelievably crazy. Beyond the defense, Drew Holiday absolutely showed out offensively in that game. If Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo are all running on their A game, I think it's just over for the Suns. I said this after game three. I said this after game four, and I'm saying it again after game five. Having the best player in the series, which the Bucs do with Giannis Antetokounmpo, I think it kind of allows that to be possible. And why I, I I don't think it's always happened every game in the series. It obviously hasn't. There was early in the season or series when they got down 2-0, there was all the talk of Middleton and Drew Holiday need to play better. Here's their stats. Drew Holiday is basically just Eric Bledsoe, and that's who they traded away, and all that stuff. But that, what you saw in Game 5, was kind of the, the ceiling of what you can get from this Bucks team. Think about this for a second with the, the Suns. Devin Booker now has back-to-back games of 40 or more points for the Suns in the finals. He has been absolutely fantastic. He had a tough game three, but he's been great every other game, and especially these last two. Game five, he goes for 40. DeAndre Ayton goes for 20 and 10. Chris Paul goes for 21 and 11 on 60% from the field. The combination of Mikael Bridges and Jay Crowder, as kind of your your nice wing role players who are going to play defense for you, hit some shots at the other end. They combined to go 9 of 13 from the field and 5 of 7 on threes. That's your starting five. They did all that. That's everything you could want from the starting five. Uh, the Suns overall, they shot 55% from the field. They went 13 of 19 on three-pointers. That's nearly 70%. They were 10 of 11 on free throws. The Suns only had eight turnovers. If I told you all of those things before the game, you might think the Suns have won this game by double digits. I really don't know how you lose that game when you look back at the stat sheet and what the Suns did, and they still lost. In a certain sense, you could look at it given how the Suns performed there and still lost and say the Bucs stole that game. And that's what I mean when I say if Giannis, Middleton, and Drew Holiday are all on their top game, The Suns path to victory, it's not impossible. It's just very slim. It just becomes a lot more difficult, which is, duh, if the three best players on the other team play well, then it's going to be harder to win. That's obvious. But I don't think it's just harder to win. The odds of winning, I think, become very slim because the Suns did everything in their power that game to make you think they'd win on the stat sheet. Again, 40 from Booker, 20 and 10 from Aiton, 21 and 11 from CB3 on 60%. 9 of 13 shooting, 5-7 from 3 between Bridges and Crowder. They go 13 of 19 on threes overall, 55% on from the field, 10 of 11 on free throws, only had 8 turnovers, only had 3 less offensive rebounds, and yet they still lost that game. Because Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday combined for 88 points, 24 assists, 20 rebounds. That's on average, basically between them, you got about 29 points, seven rebounds, and eight assists from three different players on average. If you just total that up and average it out, and also combined, the three of them shot 58% from the field. That 
turns them into a juggernaut. Because when they get that offensively, Giannis is a freak defensively. Sure, they have lineups out there where the other team, the Suns, might attack Brooke Lopez or they might attack Bobby Portis or Pat Connaughton. But they still have enough defensive insulation there with Giannis and Drew Holiday. That when that happens offensively, slim chance they're going to lose. I'll say this. It would be kind of poetic if the Bucs end up winning game six, and that would give them four straight in the series after they dropped behind 2-0. Because that's exactly what happened to them in the 2019 Eastern Conference Finals. They were up 2-0 on the Toronto Raptors, who ended up winning the title with Kawhi. They lost four straight. And that kind of started this whole narrative of, well, Mike Budenholzer, bad coach, and, and I still don't think, I, I don't think Mike Budenholzer is a bad coach, but I, I still don't think Mike Budenholzer is like a top 10 coach or anything with some of the, the lack of defensive adjustments. He probably has a top five system for the regular season, but it just hasn't worked in the postseason as well. That said, if he wins a finals, vindication for him and everybody else, I guess, can buzz off from his perspective. And more power to you. But that is what started the narrative of that. That's what started the narrative of Giannis needs to be a better shooter if they want to win a title. And the Bucs are just going to choke in the playoffs. That started it last year in the second round against the Heat. It kind of added to it. And it would be very poetic for them to basically what started this whole narrative to do the same thing to the Suns. And they have a good shot at it. In game six, they're playing at home. They've played better at home at this point of the postseason. I'd expect that to be a case again. They're favored by five points. I don't know if I buy into that. I'd probably take the Suns with the points. But I kind of think that the Bucs might end this thing in six, and that would be kind of nice poetic justice for them. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Also, over the weekend, Colin Morikawa won the Open. We did okay on our golf bets. Louis Oosthuizen, that was a, a tough final day for him. He led after the first three rounds. I think he became the first golfer to lead in a major for the first three rounds and then lose on Sunday since Sergio... Garcia, um, that's not company you want to be a part of, and Louis has come so close to a couple majors of late. He's been fantastic, but cashed on that top 20. John Rahm finished in the top five. Spieth was around in there. Kepko was around in there, so I think we did all right on uh, some of our golf bets, but Morikawa, just a machine. He wins the Open for his second major victory. It's his fourth major top 10 in his first 50 PGA Tour events. He also has five wins, so one in every 10 tournaments he's participating in. He he gets a win. That might not sound, you know, if you, oh, I'm 5-45. and 45. That doesn't sound great, but in the world of golf, getting a win every 10 events is very, very good. He's earned $14 million just from the on-golf performance. Doesn't count all of his sponsors and such in his first 50 PGA events. He's just 24 years old. I'll add this. If you go through and look at his entire top 50 events, he has 18 top 10s. So about 40% of the time, he's finishing top 10. 28 top 25s. More than half the time, he's finishing in the top 25. He is just always around. Over his last 19 events this year, eight top 10s. And over the last two years, 40 events, 15 top 10s, 24 top 25s. You can extrapolate it however you want. This guy's always around. He's getting in the top 25 more than half the time. He's getting in the top 10 at a very high rate, and he's winning at a pretty high rate as well. I hate the conversation that we have to get to every time a new young player has a nice stretch of golf 
or wins a major or two about, is this the next guy? Is this the next Tiger Woods? Because the answer usually, no, not usually. The answer is always no. And even if that does happen with Colin Morikawa, even if he does become the next great, the next guy who's winning handfuls of majors, let's just enjoy it and let's not focus on that. We have seen so many guys that that has occurred with. Remember when Jordan Spieth, early on in his young PGA career, won a couple majors, and that was the conversation. Like, is he the next guy? And guess what? He went into a bit of a lull where it was a couple years between winning tournaments. And now Spieth is back to being one of the elite golfers in the game. In fact, he was hanging around at the Open. He finished second in the event. But we don't need to jump aboard that just to create fodder of, oh, do we finally have that next guy? Because there are so many good golfers right now. And there will be a rotation where somebody else gets hot. There's a lot of good golfers, and a lot of them are very young. That said, here's a cool stat uh, dug up by Justin Ray of The Athletic. More Cow and Tiger Woods are the only golfers to have won the PGA and the Open before turning 25. I don't say that to start this Tiger Woods comparison because, as I said, it's always silly. I say it to show you how impressive it is that Colin Morikawa did that. And the fact that he did it, too, in majors that he had never played in before. Last year when he won the PGA, that was his first appearance in that event. This year when he won the Open, that was his first appearance in the event. He's just a great golfer. He drives the ball well. He is immaculate with his irons. Normally, he's not the best putter, but this is why sometimes you go with guys who are just elite ball strikers because if you get hot with the putter, everything else will come. It's like a team who is dominant at defense and at shooting two-point shots in, in college basketball, and they're just, let's say, average or below average at three-point shooting. And maybe this is even a bad comparison because in college basketball and uh, basketball in general, three-point shooting is so important. So maybe this is even a bad example there. But it's like you have the best team in the country at shooting two-point shots, the best team in the country at defense, and let's just say you're middle of the pack in three-point shooting. That's Colin Morikawa. The three-point shooting is the putting. And so if you have a game where all of a sudden you shoot 10 of 20 from three and you have all those other things that you do well, it's game over for the other team. That's Colin Morikawa. He led the field in strokes gained putting. So if you're telling me you have this guy who drives the ball well, he's immaculate with his iron play, and he putted better than everybody else, game, set, match, over with. And that's what he did, and that's what he continues to show the potential to do. He just turned 24. He has two majors, both coming from behind on the final day to get them. Talk about the stones on that dude. He's absolutely nails in the clutch. He's a phenomenal golfer. And though I'm wary of it always continuing this way, because like I said, we've seen before, players who are young start off hot, and then it takes a couple years. You kind of have to reinvent your game. Maybe something changes in your swing. Maybe you just hit kind of a mental block and then you kind of figure it back out and, and rotate through. You just, there's cycles when you're playing well and then maybe when you're not playing as well. So I'm wary of that to continue, but he's definitely a guy who should get to know, who you should get to recognize because he is going to be around the golf scene competing at the highest level. And he is in that same group as those top guys. Again, out with the, is this the next Tiger Woods conversation? In with the, 
are they in that top group of guys, the Brooks Kepkas, the John Roms, the Jordan Spieths, the Dustin Johnsons, the Justin Thomases, and so forth for a long time? And I think the answer to that with Colin Morikawa was answered on Sunday. It is clearly a resounding yes. FM 1017-1320-KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David Lesky going to join us in about 20 minutes. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Depend on it. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get, obviously, the germs out of your car. But also, you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's, unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations, and there are a lot of them, unlimited guest service, most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Royals opened up the second half of their season. It didn't go much better than the end of their first half. They lost the series to the lowly Baltimore Orioles. And maybe there's more to come, but it seems like there's going to be certain players that are departing from the roster pretty soon for this team. David Lesky, Inside the Crown, joins us now here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David, there was a report from Joel Sherman about Danny Duffy being a guy that a lot of executives around the league think is going to get traded. Is he the top trade chip for this Royals team? Uh, yeah, I, I think that he is the guy most likely to go. Um, uh, you know, you look up and down the roster, and I, I started doing this earlier today, and what ended up happening was I listed out all 42 players currently on the Royals' 40-man roster, including 60-day injured list guys. So I did that because I'm a nerd. Um, and, and Duffy is, he's the guy. I mean, he, he is the most likely to go. It sounds like the Royals are willing to move him, which is, I mean, with the Royals is, is almost as big as anything. Um, because if, if there's not, if they, if, if they don't want to move a guy, it almost doesn't matter what the offer is sometimes, I feel like. So, you know, them being ready to move on that um, free agent year, Going nowhere, teams, you know, starting pitching being maybe even more in demand than usual this season. Um, you know, it all adds up, and and there it is. There's Danny Duffy on the trade block with a pretty good chance, I think, to go somewhere else in the next, what is it, 10 days now, 11 days? Yeah, it's 30th this year. So, um, yeah, I think he's the top choice. Other than him, I don't know. Scott Barlow is a possibility, I think. And then you look at other guys. Michael A. Taylor, I think, has a really good chance to get moved. Rod Dyson, Greg Holland. Um, you know, guys who can play a role on a team, but uh, aren't necessarily difference makers necessarily. But Barlow could be a difference maker, and so I think he could get moved too. So there, there's going to be a little movement. I think I think Duffy will go. Um wouldn't be surprised if he's back as a free agent, honestly. But, uh, yeah, I think he, he has the best shot to go. But there are some other guys who have a possibility, too. What would you rate the likelihood of Whit Merrifield being traded? I feel like his name gets brought up every July for the past two, three, four years, 
and it just never happens. So what are the chances that this is finally the year? Yeah, I mean, every July, every November, and December, um, and then he's on the team. I, yeah, I, I think that there's a chance. Um, the problem is he's not the player he was two, three years ago when, when he probably should have been traded. Um, but on the, on, the, on the plus side, for acquiring teams, he had, his contract is only $2.5 million next season. Uh, he had that set up, and I think I think the structure had a lot to do with the possibility of a strike, and so he would get most of the money from that contract before the strike and not have to worry about it if, if 2022 was a lost year. Um, but he's also under team control for 23, so he's still an attractive trade chip. I, I just, I don't know. I feel like the Royals put a really high premium on him, and this goes back to, it, you know, even, even an offer that may seem fair on the surface, if the Royals don't want to move a guy, they need more than fair. And they have not liked what they've gotten offered for Whit Merrifield. He's, he's been available in the way that everybody's available, but they haven't liked that. And, and I don't know that they're going to get a better offer. Um, I mean, they probably should have budged on what they wanted at this point, but I, I don't know that they have. So I would say, you know, 40 to 50% at best. Um, but I, I mean, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if he got traded, but I'm not necessarily, you know, waiting to write an article about it and expecting it. Going back to the Danny Duffy trade, should the Royals continue to pitch him? Should they shut him down? Should they just trade him now? Because if part of the equation there is health related, why would you not get rid of him just to make sure that there's not an injury that occurs and then you can't trade him at all? Yeah, there's a delicate dance um, because, well, especially with Duffy, because he's already missed so much time this season with his, uh, what was it, the, the forearm injury. And, and, and with that, you almost have to prove he's healthy in some ways. And at the same time, you don't want to pitch him too much and, have, and, and cause a problem that he might not be healthy at some point. And, then, and it, freak things can happen, too. I mean, you look at his start on Friday. He pitched really, really well, but he got hit by a line drive. That's not that's not an arm issue, but it could it could be a problem, right? I mean, it's just a there's a big risk there, but at the same time, you almost feel like teams need to see him because he hasn't thrown. I don't think he's gone more than four innings since he's been back. Maybe I think he went five actually, um, right before the break. But you know, if teams are acquiring him as a starting pitcher and say, hey, we want to get six, six, six and a third, seven innings from this guy occasionally. They might need to see it before they're willing to give up a, a big piece. But at the same time, the Royals showing that off might cause him to miss time. And so it, it's it's very delicate right there. And and so I, I could see both arguments to that. Um, the good news, I mean, if you want to call it good news, if to, he pitched on the 16th, which means he's set to go probably, I would assume he'll go Friday um, when the Royals come back home against Detroit. And that's that's a week before the deadline. It might only be two more starts. It might only be one if an acquiring team wants to get him for an extra start. And so the risk isn't huge, huge. But, yeah, I mean, it's a concern because you don't want to – we've seen it happen for the Royals quite a bit. I mean, think back to whatever year it was that David DeJesus was about to get traded. He got hurt <laughs> like, like two days before the deadline. And then think back to 2016. I think – I think they would have moved Lorenzo Cain and Wade Davis, and we might be having a different conversation about this team. But both those guys were on the injured list at the deadline. What are they supposed to do? Nothing. I mean, you can't. It, it, that, that's out of their control, but it's, 
just one of those things. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's a big risk there. So I, look, I wouldn't argue either way with them, honestly, at this point. We're talking with David Leskey of Inside the Crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. As far as the on-the-field stuff, what do the Royals do with Brady Singer at this point? You know, I don't know. And and I, I may not be the best person to ask about Brady Singer because I am so irked and frustrated by him that I just <laughs> I, I don't I don't know what to make of him. I mean, I, I think about that answer. I wrote about it today. When I think it was Alec Lewis of the Athletic asked him about his changeup, and his response was, "I mean, come on, look, you obviously only have two pitches." He mentioned that it doesn't really matter if he has a third pitch because he wasn't commanding his other two. That's a terrible answer. I mean, just a terrible answer. And look, maybe the impression that I get from him from his post-game press conferences and everything else is just completely off. I don't know the guy. But at the same time, he really strikes me as a pitcher who either can't add another pitch, he's unable to, or he's too arrogant to. It's one of those two at this point because you, I can understand going through last season and having a pretty solid rookie year. I mean, he, was, he wasn't great, but he was good, and he finished well and everything and saying, look, I don't, I don't need it. I can get by. Well, he's not getting by. He's failing. I mean, his ERA is now over five. He had a nice little stretch um, leading up to the break, but he also had a bad stretch leading up to that nice little stretch. So, you know, what is he? Um, and at some point, you've got to make those changes. And, you know, it, it's become really frustrating to me. I've, I've been very much, I mean, you, you can attest to this for, Three years on the Cal Eldred is not the guy bandwagon. <laughs> he's he's not. I, I don't. I never thought he was. I I am more convicted in that than ever. But at, at some point, you also have to blame the guys throwing the baseballs, right? <laughs> I mean, these these pitchers they they have a responsibility to get better as well. It's not it's not just the guy coming out of the dugout and giving bad advice when they're two and zero on the number three hitter. And and, and I think Brady Singer is is kind of gotten somewhat of a pass from people because Cal Eldred is such a uh, a fire starter among conversations, but you know, he, he, he's got to do something. And, and I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. I feel like if you're asking him to throw more change-ups or whatever the third pitch is, it doesn't have to be a change-up, but if you're asking him to throw more and he's actively not, you can't just shrug your shoulders and walk away. You've got to do something about that. There has to be a consequence for that action. And it's not like he's pitching so well that you can't afford to you know, send him to AAA for a month to work on it. And so I, I don't know what the answer is, but whatever they're doing is not the answer. Is there any precedent for guys around the league who have made it work with two pitches? I, I know Tyler Glass now is, is constantly brought up as kind of an example with that, but how often does that occur, and, and how do guys who maybe have succeeded with two pitches, how do they differ from Brady Singer that maybe makes it doable for them as opposed to making it doable for Singer? Yeah, I haven't gone into it and looked to see who has done it with two pitches. But the, you know, when you when you think about guys who who you kind of know anecdotally have, first of all, they always have the third pitch. Singer just doesn't throw his changeup. I mean, it's not like they, they got a pitch they'll throw eight times in a game. Singer doesn't do that. So that's one thing. The second thing is the guys who do tend to get by on fewer pitches. The pitches they have are dominant. And and Singer just doesn't have that. I, I think he has a potential 
that fighter has potential to be a dominant fighter. It's not right now. I don't know why it's not. I don't know if it's if it if it will be or if this is the top or whatever it is. But he is not. His two pitches aren't dominant enough to not have a third pitch, and to never even be willing to flash the third pitch. You know, it, it's. I, I wrote about this. The juxtaposition of Bubich and Singer in the same game was really striking to me because the Royals have said, "Hey, we need you to throw your curveball more." And what has Chris Bubich done? He's thrown his curveball more, and he had a great outing. Now. It's against the Orioles, but it's the same team that Singer couldn't get out for, for two plus innings, right? So it's you know it's a pretty fair comparison. And Bubich just said, "Hey, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an effort to throw this more." And I think we've seen some results from it. Not always great, but we're, we've seen them here and there. And and Singer's just not. And you know, the thing that those two guys have in common is neither neither one has two dominant pitches aside from that third pitch. Bubich's changeup when it's on is one of the better change-ups you'll see. The problem we've seen quite a bit is he leaves it out of the middle of the plate too much, and so it's not good enough. And so he said, hey, I'll, I'll throw a third pitch. Great. Brady Singer, he doesn't have the dominant pitches to do it, and, and that's what separates him from the guys who have been able to do it with fewer pitches. And yeah, it, So one of two things has to happen. He either needs to get better with the two pitches he has or add that third pitch. Speaking of Chris Bubich, how encouraging was his performance on Saturday when he came out of relief and uh, – Basically pitched inning-wise like a starting pitcher in that game. How, how encouraging was that to see from Bubich after uh, his struggles at the end of the first half? It was it was so good to see. It reminded me back, you know, he was coming in for Daniel Lynch um, when Lynch was up back in, I guess that was what, early May. And we, we'd get like five and two-thirds from Chris Bubich. And this was after he had to be sent down to the minors because he was struggling on spring training. And so it was really nice to see him do that. He gave up a triple to start that, I mean, it was, it was hard to, I mean, I'm not going to, not going to sit here and say that I think it was Mancini. Um, that was driven. Ryan O'Hearn should have caught that ball. If you have an actual right fielder out there, Chris Bubich has six shutout innings on, on Saturday night. And so um, that was really, really good to see. I, Bubich is the guy I worry about the least of this group. Um, and he probably has the, I don't want to say worst, worst is the least good stuff. Um, of of everybody in the system because he, he doesn't throw hard. You know, he's he's very much a command guy, but he is so savvy on the mound that I don't worry about him struggling because I think struggles can actually make him better in the long run because he's such a such a good thinker on the mound that he will he'll find a formula. Um, and it, it was it was nice to see him out there. I I hope he gets a start. I hope he gets another opportunity. You know, maybe this is the chance to say, hey, look, we're going to limit Brady Singer's innings. It has nothing to do with performance. You, and that's the beauty of the season. You don't have to, you can, you don't have to pretend like it's, like it's not a performance-based emotion. You can, it can be true. I mean, the guy threw 64 innings last year. You know, he, he could go to AAA, work once a week because they, don't, they, they play six games a week now. And, and, and back and, you know, pull the throttle a little bit on his innings and just say it's for that. And give Chris Bubich those innings for, for three, four weeks and just see how he runs with it again on the rotation. I I would be all for that because that was a great performance from Bubich that night. Talking with David Lesky for a few more minutes here of Inside the Crown. Bobby Witt Jr., Nick Prado both got bumped up to AAA. Given that the Royals aren't obviously making a playoff push or anything, is there reason to bring both these guys up at some point this year or would you wait till next year to do that even though that would be kind of a wet blanket? Well, 
I mean, I think I think you can make an argument both ways. The reason the the argument for bringing them up is if you think they're going to be on the roster from opening day on, or even like May first, if you don't want to if you don't want to commit to opening day, is you get their feet wet. You give them that opportunity in the big leagues now when it doesn't really matter. Um, with with Prado in particular, he has to be added to the forty man after the season, or else he's going to be um, exposed in the Rule Five and. With the minor league season he's had, somebody would take him, obviously. So they're gonna they're gonna put him on the forty man. It, they gotta do it anyway. So you might you might want to get him fifty at bats. I don't know what it is. Uh, with Bobby Witt Jr., it's a little bit different just because he doesn't he doesn't have to be added until after I think it might be next season or maybe the year after. No, it must be next season. Um, and I mean he'll be added before then, so it's not gonna make a difference. But um, yeah, I mean I could see saying. Look, they're going to be a big part of this team next year. Let's get them the at bats right now, and that way they don't. Uh, when they, when they come to the big leagues, it's not their first time. Um, so I, I could I could see that the, the issue, and I tweeted this earlier that the September rosters are not what they used to be. They only go up to twenty eight now, and and so you can't bring up the entire forty man roster like you used to be able to. And now that doesn't mean the Royals won't have room, but I think you're probably going to see guys like Zuber. Daniel Tillo, who's working his way back from rehab, um, a third catcher, you know, Sebastian Rivero will probably be up. They always do that. And, and now all of a sudden you've already added three guys. And I know, I know they have plenty of roster spots with, with, with dead weight, but it gets filled pretty quickly. So they do have roster limitations to deal with. Um, the trade deadline will actually give us a much clearer picture of, of who might be up later in the season. So we'll know a little bit more in a week and a half. Um, but um, that, that would be the argument for bringing them up. The other is just simply giving other guys a shot if you don't want to bring them up. But, uh, I, I would imagine, I would say 40% we see both 65% we see one of the two at some point this year. Here's David Lusky and check out all of his great work inside the crown, subscribe to his sub stack and you can check out his case for all the, the trade candidates on the Royals 40-man roster. David, thank you so much for the time. Definitely. Thanks, Eric. All right, David Lesky is always joining us here on Rock Truck Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Depend on it. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, FM 1017. 1320 KLWN. Coming up in about 35 minutes, we're going to be joined by John Morris. Last week, we did the non-con portion of the season for KU football, previewing all of KU football's different opponents. This week, we're going to get into Big 12 play, so we should have about half or so of the different Big 12 opponents. Um, Tomorrow, we might not have a show. The Royals are supposed to play at 305. They moved the game, so might just have no show at all. We were originally going to Preview Iowa State tomorrow. That might get moved to Wednesday. But over the course of the coming days, we'll have all of the Big 12 opponents that KU is playing. And today's is Baylor with John Morris in about 35 minutes. But right now, it's time for another edition of Case of the Mondays. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. First up, a fan got banned for life from the MLB. Alex Verdugo, who is the left fielder for the Boston Red Sox, 
tried tossing a young Boston Red Sox fan a ball at some point in the game. I don't know if it was the same inning or earlier. A Yankees fan intercepted it, which strike one to that Yankees fan. Later threw it back on the field, strike two. Strike three, he hit Verdugo when he threw it back on the field in the sixth inning of the game. As you'd imagine, Alex Verdugo, not happy. Turned around, was yelling at the fan, pointing at him. I mean, he was so angry and upset, which rightfully so. Eventually, he had to be consoled by the umpires. He had to be restrained by his first base coach. They basically paused the action. The Red Sox took everybody off the field for a little bit to let things calm down. The results, now the fan has been banned for life from attending MLB games. So on one hand, we can probably chalk this up to being an issue around the country with fans getting too comfortable about their place in the game. We've seen this a lot recently. We saw it in the NBA playoffs. We've seen it internationally in soccer a lot with throwing things on the field or throwing things on the court. That's not okay. On the other hand, we can probably also chalk this up to crappy New York fans who have been at the center of this many times now, spitting on Trey Young, throwing trash or bottles on the field, throwing baseballs back. This is a fan-wide problem that they're getting more comfortable, but this is also a New York problem as much as anywhere else regionally. The NHL offseason began. All kinds of trades and moves occurred. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of this guy signed here and this trade was made here. I think the most interesting part of this all was you had players who were getting protected or unprotected because the league is expanding to 32 teams. The Seattle Kraken are going to be the newest team. They'll get to draft off of the unprotected players from different teams. It's not just interesting because we haven't seen anything like that in the NFL or MLB in over 25 years. It's hard for me to imagine. You go back to, I think the Panthers were the last one, maybe the Jaguars, maybe they were at the same time. And the thing with those teams, like the Jaguars were good right away. Panthers made the Super Bowl within their first, I don't know, 10 years or so. I wonder what it would look like nowadays in football. And imagine, who would you protect if you were the Chiefs? If you could only protect, I, I don't know what the protections go to. You protect like the top 10, 15, 20 players on the team, something like that. Who are you protecting? Who's getting taken by these other teams? It's just kind of an interesting thing. And it's not just the fact that we haven't seen it in the NFL or MLB over the recent years, but also when we did see it recently with the NHL, it was the Vegas Golden Knights. And not only did they have to go through this process, they came out of it awesome right away they went to the stanley cup in their first year and they've been kind of a power they've been one of the best teams in the nhl ever since it is one a reminder of how important depth is specifically in hockey i don't think if we had expansion in the nba to that point and did the expansion draft i don't think you would see that team have success for quite some time it's a lot harder to build yourself off of depth in the nba you need that star player NFL, maybe. Depth is very important in the NFL, but the issue with the NFL is what quarterback are you getting? That would probably hinge on that specifically. I definitely think there is room to expand, too, in all these major sports. You could get to 36. You could get to 40 teams easy. NBA is at 30. MLB is at 30. NFL is at 32. NHL is now at 32. And it's not that all these different places don't have any major sports teams. But a lot of these places I'm about to name are missing at least one. For instance, Portland. They have an NBA team. They don't have a hockey team. They don't have a professional football team. They don't have an MLB team. You could add 
a major sporting team or two to all these different cities. Portland, Las Vegas, Nashville, the Carolinas, Oklahoma City, basically the entire Northwest, so to speak. New Mexico, New Orleans, Alabama, Kentucky. These are all places that have openings in one or more of the major sports. You could easily get up to 36 or 40 teams in all these different sports. Some other transfers are heading into Big 12 schools. Kevin O'Banner announced on Friday that he's going to go to Texas Tech. And if you remember, O'Banner was with Max Acemas leading Oral Roberts to the Sweet 16 this past season. Stretch four, phenomenal player. That's a big pickup for Texas Tech. On Saturday, Marcus Carr announced for Texas. The O'Banner one, to me, makes Texas Tech a lot more interesting. You lose Chris Beard, but then all of a sudden, Terrence Shannon's coming back. Kevin O'Banner is going to join the team. All of a sudden, instead of Texas Tech being a team that I viewed as, man, maybe they'll be like seventh place or something in the Big 12, I view them more as maybe in that fifth or sixth range, which maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but maybe that's the difference between making the tournament or getting a top eight seed versus being one of the last teams in. Marcus Carr on the other end. That is the number one transfer by some lists, by many lists. A phenomenal player in Minnesota kind of does it all at the point guard position. I went back and looked, and if you go to ESPN, they have rankings of like the top 100 transfers. Five of the top 10 are going to Big 12 schools. Eight of the top 25 are going to Big 12 schools. 12 of the top 41 are going to Big 12 schools. Lots of talent entering the Big 12 via the transfer portal. It makes sense when you think of Chris Beard kind of mastering that. But then when you add to it that Bill Self is starting to do it. We've seen Bill Self use it before, but maybe not to the extent that we saw it this year and some other schools as well. There's going to be a lot of talent in the Big 12 this year. It's kind of transfer destination you across the 10-team league. Other ways in college sports, some NIL stuff occurred over the weekend. A Texas A&M fan site has a deal with two players to pay them $10,000 each for interviews as part of a deal with a local company sponsoring it. This is interesting from a standpoint of what does it mean for when media want to interview players? Are they only going to interview now if they're getting paid? Professional players aren't paid extra to do interviews. Keep that in mind. Now, in a sense, they can be paid to do interviews because it adds to their brand and sponsorship availability. So in a sense, it gives them money. College players obviously aren't being paid by the team or in an organization. So how long before certain players start saying, I'm not appearing with anyone unless I get paid? Do they have that prerogative? Will that be good for the player? Will that be good for the school? Will that be good for the game? I don't know. Does it matter? Another good question. I don't have the answers. I I think there is a fine line there, though. If a player wants to only talk after getting paid, that's his choice. I I think the paid interviews should probably be deeper and get more out of it than a normal press conference would, so there has to be some incentive there. The best part to me would imagine if we have senior speeches every year. Imagine if the player said, nope, not doing my senior speech unless I get a sponsor for it. I made the joke on Twitter earlier today, Mitch Lightfoot's senior speech is going to get sponsored. Or like he's going to bring up his sponsors. And that honestly could be one of the most sponsored, like if you're a business out there, that could be one of the most sponsorable items you can imagine. You have 16,000 people sitting there listening intently to this kid. And that's not even counting the people listening to it on the radio or the TV broadcast who aren't there and are still sticking around listening to the senior day speech. That is a in-tune audience. If you can get a guy to mention your brand during his senior day speech, 
that's quite the inventory there. You're going to probably have to pay pretty high dollar to do it. We're probably going to get pretty good results out of it. Uh, elsewhere in the NIL stuff, Michigan, the Wolverines official athletic store is partnering with players to create custom jerseys to sell with player names and numbers on the back. This is from a story with Tom Van Heron of ESPN. At this time, the university does not allow officially licensed products to be sold directly with the player's name and number on it. However, the custom jersey option is a loophole around that rule that the university was happy to accommodate. Customers are able to go to the website, click a drop-down menu that lists positions and player names to choose from, and create a custom jersey for a Michigan football player. The deal will pay each player the same amount per jersey sold and will pay each player quarterly. If one player is more popular than another, sells more jerseys, they'll make more money. But each player will have the opportunity to make the same amount per jersey. The rules goes, rules on this are two weeks old and changing daily. As long as your eligibility exists at the University of Michigan, they'll pay you for the rights to your name and number on a jersey. Right now, the contract with each player is for the length of their eligibility at Michigan. So that's interesting, one, that as soon as they graduate, they have to pull the jerseys off the market. That's kind of interesting. But this should probably be something that happens at every school across the country. We see the jerseys that the number four jersey, but it doesn't have a name on it. Who's that? Of course, it's Devontae Graham. Well, start adding the names on them. You can add a little extra to the cost if you want because there's the actual player on there. You get the pay players some money as well. I think this should be an automatic, easy thing for every player to make a little NIL money and also in order to kind of enhance your brand but also do something cool because this is kind of what the NIL is built around. And I think fans would really appreciate this too, the ability to actually buy the jersey that has the name on the back of it, I think would be very fun. Like, and even to go back, I, I don't like the fact that it's cut off as once your eligibility is done, it's no longer there. I would like them to start having jerseys of old players, right? Like if you're a Texas fan, you should be able to go back and get a Kevin Durant Texas jersey. KU, you should be able to go back and get an Aqib Tlaib Kansas football jersey. Or you should be able to go back and get a Mario Chalmers jersey for KU that has the final four patch on it. That's a good way to make money for the school makes money for the player. Fans are happy because they get a cool jersey. Win, win, win for everybody. The basketball tournament, by the way, got underway. It's still going right now. A lot of good games going on. They got Eric Collins on the call of some of the action. The Charlotte Hornets broadcaster who we've been using on RCST Trivia that just yells, oh! Really good play. A lot of fun players. The most notable thing about the basketball tournament is the Elam ending, though, which the more I watch it, the more I love it. I still don't know if I'm all aboard the fact that you should add it to a league like the NCAA or the NBA. But if they did add it, I wouldn't be upset either. It is uh, very fun to watch, and every game ends on a made basket. And you get some incredible comebacks. There was a comeback, Stillwater Stars, which is the Oklahoma State alumni team, overcame a 23-point deficit against the New Mexico alumni team. They wouldn't have been able to do that if there was a clock. But because there was the Elam ending, they made stops late in the game. They kept the opponent from hitting the target score, and they came back. It's just a lot of fun. Again, I don't know how well it fits every version of basketball, but if they add it to any version, not going to be upset with that either. Internationally, Gold Cup continues to roll through over the weekend. The United States down Canada 1-0 last night in Kansas City to clinch the top spot with three wins and three tries in Group B. Scoring the lone goal was Shaq Moore. That's the best news soccer has had in the U.S. After all these years wondering, could there be a LeBron-level athlete in soccer? Well, we finally have our own Shaq in soccer. But they'll now head on to the quarterfinals in July 25th against either Jamaica or Costa Rica. Elsewhere in international competition, 
Team USA basketball got wins on both the men's and women's fronts. Keldon Johnson played very well. He was kind of a debatable ad for Team USA, but played really well. USA beat Spain 83-76. to You can get the men's team at minus 500 right now to win gold versus plus 330 for the field, which sounds like awful odds, but it's a lot less than normal. For instance, the woman who just got some revenge for the U.S. against Nigeria and won 93-62. They're minus 1,000 to win the Olympics. So the men actually kind of good odds compared to where they normally are. Hopefully they can all end up playing, though, because not only are COVID numbers at a six-month high in Tokyo, where the Olympics are being held, but also now athletes are starting to test positive. Coco Goff, who is the young U.S. women's tennis star, tested positive. She's out of the Olympics. An alternate for the U.S. women's gymnastic team tested positive and is out. Zach Levine on the U.S. Olympic team for men's basketball becomes the third member to go into protocols and have to leave the team. Could you imagine if one of the top stars tested positive for the Olympics for Team USA or, or really any country? And I mean, beyond the fact that you can think of any other athlete who could have been exposed and tested positive, think of the fact that some of these athletes have worked their whole lives to get to this point for an event that occurs every four years, only to have it bumped away by testing positive. That sucks. So please just get vaccinated. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Let's preview the Baylor Bears coming up next. I hear I think I'm going to lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. About 20 till 5, this is Rock Jock Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. KU plays Baylor to kick off their Big 12 season. It's their third game of the year. We're now joined by the voice of the Baylor Bears, John Morris. John, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day to talk with me here. Uh, I was just previewing Baylor on the other side, and a team that goes from a Sugar Bowl appearance to a 2-7 and seven year a season ago. What was the biggest difference in Baylor in 2020 as opposed to the 2019 version? Well, Derek, good to be on with you. And probably the short answer is a coaching change because that's what happened after 2019, 11 and played the big 12 championship game that you said played in the sugar bowl. That was under Matt rule. And then coach rule and uh, really the majority of his staff left for the Carolina Panthers and the NFL and, you know, more power to coach in the NFL, and I'm really happy he got that opportunity, and he's doing well there. But then you know what it's like when when you have a coaching change and you sort of have to get a new coach in, and then he's got to get a new staff in. The players have to get acclimated to that new staff, and uh, that was what we went through last year was that transition year with a new coaching staff under Dave Aranda, and I really liked Dave, and I felt bad for him that his first year as a head coach was a COVID year, and didn't have spring practice and he was getting to know his players on zoom and you know his players families couldn't meet them face to face so going through all that that led to a two and seven record but uh, I think Baylor and coach Rander are going to be much much improved this year and now a new offensive coordinator takes over is there going to be a new adjustment this season on the offense yeah I think so it was very uh, it was very pedestrian last year you know there wasn't much punch to that offense and, uh, you know, I, I'm not laying blame anywhere except that it just didn't work very well. And Coach Aranda realized that. And uh, even coming out of a COVID year, he made significant coaching changes. 
really, everybody except one on the offensive staff is new this year. That includes our new offensive coordinator, Jeff Grimes, comes to Baylor from BYU, and they had a uh, terrific season last year. Uh, of course, he's not bringing the quarterback <laughs> with him, but uh, still, that offense is really aligns with what Coach, uh, Coach uh, Aranda wants to do here. And so a lot of changes offensively. I think that's going to be a big part of the improvement for Baylor this season. Charlie Brewer now gone off to Utah after a strong career at Baylor. What is the plan at quarterback kind of looking like? Who's in the competition for the Bears in 2021? Well, if you have the answer to that, you tell me because (laughs) I don't have the answer to that. That is the big question, really, uh, surrounding Baylor football uh, going into this year. Who's the quarterback going to be? Because Charlie was there. You know, he started, for the most part, for four years, really three and a half straight years. And, uh, you know, Charlie just wanted and probably needed a a change of scenery, Uh, wanted to go somewhere different. And, uh, again, I wish him all the best at Utah. So I hope he does well, well there. There's three candidates that would be, I think it's going to be one of these three candidates couple of them have played a little bit. Uh, that's Gary Bohannon and Jacob Zeno. They have played a little bit in the last couple of years, not much. And then another guy is Blake Shapin, who's a redshirt freshman who hadn't yet. He uh, traveled with the team last year but didn't get in the game. Uh, so it's going to be one of those three. So it, it's a big change, and that's really the big question is who is the quarterback that will uh, step in uh, you know, in the absence of Charlie Brewer offensively overall what would you say is the biggest strength and then what would you say is maybe the biggest question I don't I don't know if quarterbacks is that biggest question but what would you say is is the strength and the biggest question of the offense yeah a couple of things I mean of course quarterback uh you know until that question is answered that's going to be a question but then just a, a change of schemes um Jeff Grimes is the new offensive coordinator comes from BYU I really like him a lot and his his style of offense is a wide zone so they want to you know really rely on the offensive line plowing the way and then uh, stretching the field that way uh you know running it to one side or the other more than passing it you know out to the boundary so wide zone is his style of offense and i think they got it uh installed pretty well or very well in the spring so they'll just come back they'll uh you know develop some offensive line depth which we didn't have last year, that'll be an area that'll be much better this year. And then name that quarterback. And then we've got some good skill players, good receivers, good running backs, uh, and, and really three good tight ends that I think will be a part of this new offense. So so that's those are the biggest things, I think, offensively that Baylor will work on as they get into fall camp. I, I was reading somewhere that Baylor was 125th in offensive explosion a season ago. And – that kind of blew my mind because when I think of Baylor football, I think of these speedy receivers on the outside, whether you go back to Art Bryles or even under Matt Rule to a certain extent with some of the skill players they've had on the outside. How is that looking for this Baylor team? Yeah, now help me out. That's not good, right? When you say right. 125th, that's – yeah, you want to be better than that, I think. So um, it, it was just – you know, last year, it's, it's kind of hard to explain unless you saw it, but it just didn't jive. You know, what we wanted to do offensively and our personnel, it just didn't jive. And, you know, that led to that kind of lack of productivity. 
So that led to the change, you know, a new style of offense, new coordinator, new offensive line coach, new receivers coach. So all those changes have taken place now, and uh, it, it, it will be better. You know, I can almost sit here on July 19th and tell you that will be better this year than it was last year. On the other side of the ball, the defense brings back nine starters to the team. How did you think they performed last year on that side of the ball, and uh, who are some guys that you're kind of looking out for that could make a big impact here in 2021? Yeah, Derek, uh, really good last year. I mean, Baylor was 2-7, and seven, and I'm not sure we would have won two games without you know the defense playing as well as it did. It kept us in games. Uh, Lincoln Riley, after we played Oklahoma, lost to Oklahoma, but he said Baylor's defense was as tough as any they played all year. So that says a lot, you know, even in a two and seven season. So, uh, you know, guys like Terrell Bernard, who's an All-American, uh, played seven games, I think, last year, went out with a shoulder injury. He might have been the Big 12 defensive player of the year last year, except for the injury, you know, that knocked him out. Um, and then Jalen Petrie stepped in for him and played really well. And those guys are back. Um, you know, there's some, they've developed some defensive line depth. They've got a, a newcomer in the defensive front, a transfer from LSU. Remember the name of Apu Aika. Apu Aika. He's a big old space eater of a you know nose tackle. And uh, you know the spring game, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. I was just watching him because he was taking up you know so much attention by a couple of blockers every play. You know at, at the defensive nose tackle position. And then our secondary, we've got a lot of guys back, uh, which is great. You know, they've kind of been through the, the rigors, and they're going to be better for it. So I think defensively, that's going to be the calling card for this team. And then, you know, the offense comes around like we hope it will. Uh, this team will be much better this year than last year. Talking with John Morris, the voice of the Baylor Bears here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. I'll ask you the same question I asked offensively. Uh, what would you say is the biggest position of strength for the defense? And is there anywhere that maybe there's there's a question about something I on think, the defensive side? Yeah, I, guys like Terrell Bernard and Jalen Petrie, just building around them and building around their experience. I think that's the strength. Um, weakness, weakness wise. I mean, not that there aren't weaknesses. But I think they're, they're much less glaring on the defensive side than they would be on the offensive side. Um, you know, no real change scheme-wise. Ron Roberts is back as the defensive coordinator, uh, and he was here, you know, last year and Coach Aranda's first year. So I, I think, if anything, just developing more depth. You just can't have too much depth. And I wouldn't say that's a weakness, really, but I would say that's an area that, uh, you know, it's probably a constant area that you want to work on. Does is there anything that from last year's KU game when Baylor won forty-seven to fourteen? It's kind of early in the year, so this might be uh, kind of going back into the into the vault, so to speak. But is there anything you remember about last year's game against Kansas being so early in the year that kind of stuck out to you? You know, to be honest, not really. Um, you know, no offense at all, but that's been uh, for almost a year, more than a year ago, almost a year ago. Yeah. So uh, I, I remember it was a big win for Baylor just because, uh, you know, any win is going to be big. But uh, to, to be able to do that, you know, over a conference opponent, that's a big win. So that's really what stands out the most. Nothing else, I'd have to look back, you know, at a, at a, at a box score or something from the game to really 
refresh my memory on what what uh, you know what happened that day. Well, and the reason I ask is, I was I was looking at the box score and I I just found it very very interesting. Um, Baylor had twenty four more total yards, which that's not a huh. a big enough yardage discrepancy that would make you think, okay, they won by thirty three. The turnovers were even in the game. Really, the biggest difference was third down conversions. Baylor was eight of fifteen. Kansas was four of sixteen. So. I, I was just kind of wondering if anything stuck out to you about why Baylor was able to come away with such a big win. I don't remember. I thought special teams might have played a, a key part in it. Yeah. It just looking back at the box score was kind of odd to see all these stats that were closer than I thought, but then to see the scoreboard was so widened. Yeah. Well, when you start giving those numbers, uh, my first question was going to be, what about turnovers? Because sometimes, you know, if yardage is, is close like it was in that game, Sometimes turnovers can be a, a major difference, but if they were even, you know, that's not it. So that's really interesting that, that the Baylor and KU were so close in so many categories, but the score ended up not that close. Yep, and uh, we'll see what happens this year. It's the third game of the season for KU. It'll be at Memorial Stadium this year on September 18th. John Morris will be on the call for the visiting Baylor Bears of that game at 2.30. John, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, – Maybe talk to you down the road when KU gets ready to take on the Bears. I'd like that. I appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. It's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, John. All right, man. Thank you very much. All right, that's John Morris, voice of the Baylor Bears, who joined us on Rock Chalk Sports Talk here, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Interesting stuff there with Baylor. Like I said, I don't know how much of that stat stuff is – you know, indicative of how maybe KU was a little bit closer in competition to Baylor than the scoreboard indicated. And does that mean that adding a head coach like Lance Leipold, that is the difference to maybe getting you over some of those situational issues that caused you to lose the game by so much? Is that enough to make you think that they can be competitive in a game against Baylor? I think Baylor's going to be a lot better this year. I don't think they'll be a top 10 team, one that goes to the Big 12 title game this year. But I think they're a bowl team. And if you can be competitive with that team, that would serve you well. And that's all the KU fans have been asking for for years. Now, eventually, if you're just competitive with teams every year and you're 3-9 and nine every year, that's not going to work. But for step one in a young coach's career, be competitive with some teams. Make some games interesting late in the game that maybe you lose by a touchdown or two touchdowns, but it looks like you're progressing as a program. It looks like you're being competitive in this game and giving yourself a chance and entertaining the fans for coming out to the game and making it a close game. That's all you're asking for. And I think the game against Baylor might actually be that. As we look through these first four games that we've previewed, I think South Dakota, I like KU's chances there. As far as the Coastal Carolina game, that one, I don't know how I feel about that one. That's probably a top 25 team. But I think they got a good shot against Duke. It's a team rebuilding who had a bad season a year ago. And I don't necessarily like the shot of Kansas to beat Baylor, but do I like them to stay competitive, stay within a couple touchdowns? Will I be taking KU with the spread against Baylor? At that point, we'll have a couple data points to go off of. But as of now, gun to my head, KU was a 17.5-point underdog, 14.5-point underdog against Baylor. I think I'd take that. And, again, that's kind of all you're asking for with Lance Leipold here in year one. 
FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Two hours down, one to go.